Okay, we looked at Daniel 7 last week, but there's just so much stuff that we couldn't get everything in there. Um, So we'll be back there today. Now last week we saw that Daniel had a vision of four beasts. And we also saw that these beasts paralleled, the they stood for kingdoms, and they paralleled the kingdoms that were the different parts of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We identified those beasts and those different parts of the statue as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. And that is the majority report amongst evangelical scholars. Now, liberal scholars will, will uh, say that since God can't actually predict the future, then this was written and or edited after the fact, and they talk about different kingdoms. Uh, but conservative scholars has, have, have stuck with these four, for the majority anyway. But we said that the point is, is that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the big things. He's sovereign over the little things. He's sovereign over the medium-sized things. He is sovereign over everything. Now, I could possibly be wrong about the identification of the kingdoms coordinating with these beasts. What I am not wrong about is that the Bible very clearly teaches the sovereignty of God. Now, let me warn you of a couple of pits that we can fall into when examining apocalyptic literature. The first is that it is highly symbolic. Um, For instance, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, right? But if I asked you, in the Old Testament, who does it say will be the forerunner of the Messiah? You would most likely say Elijah, right? Now, if I said, well, who in the New Testament was the forerunner of Jesus? You'd say John the Baptist. Now, when, when Jesus was asked about this, he said, well, John the Baptist is Elijah, if you, can, if you can get that, if you can understand that, if you can accept that. But then the religious leaders went to John the Baptist and they said, are you Elijah? And he said, no, because he wasn't actually Elijah, right? He wasn't a reincarnated Elijah. He was a different guy, but he came in the spirit and the power and the authority of Elijah. And so it's not inaccurate, it's symbolic language. For instance, if somebody who didn't speak English and wasn't really familiar with English heard me say, it's raining cats and dogs, they'd think I was crazy. They'd think I thought mammals were falling from the sky, right? That's not what I mean. You know what I mean. But So we have to understand not just what it says, but what it actually means. The other thing is that prophecies are often fulfilled in more than one way. Uh, They'll be literally fulfilled, and then they'll be fulfilled again in a different time, in a different way. For instance, Hosea 11.1 says, and this is God speaking, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God is talking about calling Egypt, calling his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, right? But then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew in chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 writes this, And he rose, and that he is Joseph, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So which is it talking about? Was talking about both. He's talking about calling Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And then this 
thing is fulfilled again in a different and, and bigger way in the New Testament when the actual Son of God is taken to Egypt to be protected from Herod and then called back, okay? So we see that if we get real hung up on trying to iron out all the details and thinking we know all the details, then we're probably going to get some of those details wrong and then we're probably going to be looking in the wrong spot for the wrong thing. There are a lot of examples of this. These were just the first two that came to mind. The point is, this stuff that we're going to read about today may be fulfilled in a way that you do not expect. Last week, we skipped a lot of the details about the fourth beast. And so we're going to go back and look at a, at a description of the fourth beast. The fourth beast caught Daniel's attention, and with good reason. We're going to talk about the ten horns and the little horn that came up and, and knocked over three of the other horns. We're going to talk about all that stuff. I think this fourth beast represents Rome, like we said. Now, does that mean that the little horn, who I believe to be the final and ultimate embodiment of the Antichrist, will necessarily come out of the geographical area of Rome? No, I, I don't know that for sure. He might. I don't know. But Rome here may be more of a dominant and oppressive and rebellious world power than a geographical location. For example, in the book of Revelation, uh, Babylon is referred to, but most scholars don't think they're talking about the geographical area of Babylon. They think that they're talking about Rome, right? So when it says these beasts will come out of Rome, the, the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire, or out of the fourth beast that we think is Rome, that doesn't necessarily mean that he would emerge from that geographical area. Now, maybe, I don't know. I'm just saying we don't need to dig into the minutia so much that we think we know things that we really don't know. Now, I'm absolutely not saying that we don't take the Bible at its word. I'm saying let's figure out what it means given all the symbolism and then believe that without doubting. Uh, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye wrote a series called Left Behind. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, if that stuff is not accurate, don't be surprised. Okay, uh, I, It's a work of fiction, so I'm not criticizing them. But don't take that as your uh, manual and guidebook to the end times, because it's a, it's a work of fiction that they plan to entertain people with and plan to communicate some truth in. But if it's, not all, if it's all accurate, I will be uh, astonished. You know, there were a lot of well-educated people anticipating the birth of the Messiah, and almost all of them missed it because it didn't happen exactly the way that they thought it would, right? It happened exactly according to Scripture, but when the Messiah showed up, he, was, he, he had a different job description than they understood. And so we need to have some flexibility in our understanding. We need to understand and obey the super clear parts of Scripture, absolutely. But I've seen people get unduly fascinated with the minutia of, of things to come. So let's try to avoid that pitfall. We also don't neglect any Scripture. Uh, just because I don't uh, you know, have all the answers about prophecy doesn't mean that we don't need to look at it and learn the big overall picture from it. 
Let's pick up today with the fourth beast, which I said believe, you know, I believe symbolizes at the very least the Roman Empire, but probably more the Roman Empire and its continual legacy in in the Western world. Now we're going to skip some verses and we're going to go through here and just read about this fourth beast. So starting in Daniel 7, verse 7, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." Now, I know this is bizarre, but the eyes of a man uh, talk about intelligence and, and great intellect. So if that horn represents an individual, he's saying it's a, it's a smart guy, and a mouth speaking great things, that means this dude is a braggart, and he is, uh, he's very pleased with himself, and he's going to talk about it a lot. In Daniel 7, verse 17, we see these four great beasts are four kingdoms who shall arise out of the earth. So we know that these beasts represent kingdoms, and these horns on this one beast represent rulers. Verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth and iron of claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn had the eyes, had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than his companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So this horn is, is bigger and badder than all the rest that came before. He is going to make war with the saints and prevail over the saints. Verse 23 Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings." Now, one of the reasons that's a little bit confusing is it says that he will come after them and yet put down three kings. So people have theorized all manner of things about this. Some say, well, this will be a union of, of nations, uh, and then this king will come and he'll usurp the power of three of them and then take over the whole confederacy. Uh, some see it as sequential, and they... Uh, don't exactly know how to explain the taking over the other or knocking down the other three kings. I don't know. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. These horns, which we are told are kings, came out of the Roman Empire. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean geographically. I really don't know. I don't think anyone knows for sure. Again, remember the example of John the Baptist. He wasn't Elijah, but he came in the power and authority and spirit of Elijah. 
And so will this, um, will this ruler come out of the geographical area of Rome? I don't know. But he will come in the spirit and power and authority and rebellion of that Roman Empire. Who is the loudmouth horn that plucks up the three other horns? That's what inquiring minds want to know, right? That's what Daniel wanted to know. That's what we want to know. Many believe this is the final and ultimate Antichrist. There have been many Antichrists. We'll see one actually in the next chapter that is also represented as a little horn that, that comes up. And I think we know who the one in chapter 8 is. I believe that is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And so he was an Antichrist. He too is represented as a little horn. Now you might think, well, if, if we know who the little horn is in chapter 8, then we probably know who the little horn is in chapter 7. It's probably the same guy, right? I don't think so, but I think he is cut from the very same cloth, as we'll see. 1 John 2.18 tells us about these antichrists. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. So John is saying, yeah, there will be an ultimate and final Antichrist, but before then, there'll be a lot of forerunners. A couple of the worst on that list would be Nero and Hitler, and as we'll see next week, uh, Lord willing, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. The final Antichrist will be greater than his companions. So it looks like we are looking for somebody uh, that makes Hitler look like an amateur. That's, that's bad dude right there. He will make war with the saints and prevail over them for a period of time. Now I know, and, and don't get mad at me because I may uh, differ with you on this, but I know there are a lot of folks and a lot of theories that say, I believe the church will be taken away and not have to endure uh, the tribulation. I got to tell you, I'm really skeptical of that. Um, that has not been the pattern for God's people during the church. Uh, is it possible? Yes. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. Um, but I got to tell you, I'm highly skeptical that the church will be will avoid the tribulation. So I'm not sure, as I admit, that I know who this guy in Daniel seven is. But. Uh, in Daniel 8, we'll see a guy with a name on it. You know, it's easier to see the details of prophecy after it happens, right? Uh, you know, when, when something is prophesied, we can say, okay, this is going to happen, and we see general terms, we see a vague picture. But after it actually happens in history, then we can go back and say, oh, that's what this was talking about. So this guy's name was this, and this is the year that he reigned, and we can see all the details in hindsight. For instance, if I said back in the year 2000, now I didn't, have, I didn't have a dream in the year 2000 that was prophetic, but if I had, and I had gone to my friends and I said, guys, I had this dream and God told me uh, that this was a vision of something that was going to happen next year, that would be 2001. And I said, here's my dream. I had a dream that there was this beautiful eagle and he was flying and uh, out of the east, these three arrows were shot at the eagle, and two of them wounded the eagle, and another uh, missed the mark. And, and God is going to make this happen next year, or this is going to happen next year, and God's letting me know. Well, on September 11th, you'd say, oh, that's what he was talking about. 
And you'd say, okay, so I know who did it now. I know when it happened and I know what their names are, right? So in retrospect, we can see all the details of the prophecy, even though they are supernatural and predictive beforehand. It would be way too specific to dismiss, but you wouldn't have all the names and and dates until after the fact. Now I want us to see that the angel, as interested as Daniel is, the angel refocuses Daniel on the main event. He refocuses Daniel's attention. In Daniel 7, verses 16 through 18, Daniel says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And this is an angel that's watching these visions. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And here's what the angel says. He says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive a kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So do you get the picture here? Daniel goes and says, oh, tell me about these beasts. And he says, yeah, there are four kings that will come up, you know, but the saints of the Most High will receive a kingdom that will last forever and ever. The angel's attention seems to be more focused on God than he is focused on these beasts. But Daniel wants to know more, and we can't blame him. So in verses 19 through 22, Daniel says, Yeah, but this fourth beast is really scary, so I want want some more details. And those are the details that we just read a few moments ago. But the angel then tries again to focus Daniel's attention back on the main event. In verses 26 and 27, he says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So we need to place our focus on the main event, just like this angel was doing. God is the star of the show. Last week we talked about the Father's sovereignty, His eternality, His righteousness. Now let's focus on the Son of Man who has given dominion in verses 13 and 14. So the beasts are interesting, they're scary. Uh, one, one of these rulers may yet be to come and we may uh, have to deal with him, we may not have to deal with him, I don't know. But... He's interesting and inquiring minds want to know. I want to know the future uh, all the time. I complain about not being able to. I'll tell Jimmy sometimes uh, that my, I'm always asking God, what's going to happen next? What do we do next? Um, how should we proceed? I constantly ask the Lord that, and he steadfastly refuses to show me the future. So when we get a glimpse of the future, it's interesting. But let's understand that our main focus needs to be on the one who is sitting on that throne and the son of man that is presented to him. Verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So who is this one coming on the clouds of heaven? 
I know the Sunday school answer is Jesus, and you're right, it is Jesus. But I want us to talk about why it is Jesus, and I want us to see a different picture of him. We see a picture in the Gospels, right? He is, for the most part, uh, a very subdued, mild guy. Um, You know, prophecies talk about how he won't even put out a a little glowing wick. Uh, There's nothing about his person, about his Body about his visage that lets us know of his divinity. He's just a regular guy. So we're going to see a little different picture here, and we need to understand the whole picture. Next time you turn on the History Channel special about Jesus, and it says that Jesus never claimed to be divine, that was just this myth that popped up by his rulers afterward. I want you to see what Jesus meant when he referred to himself with his favorite title in the New Testament as the Son of Man. God is the one who appears riding on the clouds. Psalm 104, 1 through 3 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, And listen to this. He makes clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Now the skeptical fellow might be saying, that's dumb, clouds are water vapor. (laughs) We Christians know that clouds are water vapor too. But it's a symbol of majesty. And as we'll see in this next verse, it's a symbol of judgment to be riding on these clouds. Uh, Isaiah 19.1 is a prophecy about Egypt. And it says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. These clouds speak of majesty, and they also speak of judgment and the authority to judge. This is no ordinary man. He is one who is exalted and who appears as only God has the the majesty and authority to appear. Verse 13 says, He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. We sang earlier that God is so holy that man cannot see Him in that first song that we sang. What man could endure such scrutiny of being face to face with the Ancient of Days? You know, nobody in in the whole Bible, other than Jesus, had a more intimate relationship with God than did Moses. And yet Moses said to God, I want to see your glory. And what did God do? In Exodus, Exodus 33, 18 to 23, we see that, he, that Moses asked for him to show him his glory. And I'll just sum up, Danny. And so God says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll let you stand here in the cleft of this rock and I'll pass by, but when I do, I'm going to cover your face because a man cannot see God and live. So he says, I'll let you see my, my back as I've passed by. So he puts Moses in that cleft of the rock and he covers him up and he passes by and then he lets him see his back as he's going away. And he says, anything more of my glory and you couldn't live through it. Yet this Son of Man comes and is presented face to face with the Ancient of Days. And there's no problem there. Do you remember what the handwriting on the wall said to King Belshazzar back in in chapter 5? You know, he said, You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
Well, the Son of Man was weighed in the balances and not found wanting. He was found perfectly righteous to endure the presence of a holy God. Now remember that, you know, one of these days we're going to be weighed too. And we're either going to be found wanting or found righteous. You know, I told you, in our, our criminal courts, you're either found guilty or not guilty. Innocent is not a category, because nobody knows if you're innocent, right? Before the judgment of God, though, you'll either be found guilty or innocent and righteous. It depends on how you're judged. If you're judged on your works, you will be found wanting. If you're judged on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will be found holy. So this Son of Man was supremely worthy. So worthy that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. I want us to close today with some reasons for you to serve this King of Kings. The first is your eternal destiny depends on it. Daniel 7.10 says, A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousands served Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him, and the court sat in judgment. There is a day of judgment coming. And the books were opened. Now, we want to see more about those books, don't we? Well, in Revelation, we see more about what those books are. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 20, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. What does that mean? It means that God sees everything. Guys, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that we don't want other people to know about, God knows all about them. He sees every sin that we've ever committed. What a horrifying thought that is. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Remember I said there are two ways to be judged? One is that. One is you are judged based on what you've done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, the reason, the only reason that my name is in the book of life is because I am in Christ. I have trusted Him with my eternal soul. Uh, folks, I can, if I were judged on my goodness... Well, it's not any. If I were judged on my badness, I would be cast eternally into that lake of fire. The only way I'm safe is to be found in the refuge of Jesus Christ and have my name in that book. You'll either be judged according to your works or according to Christ's righteousness. You'll either be found wanting, as Belshazzar was, or found righteous. You'll either be eternally experiencing hell and punishment or eternally experiencing God in heaven. So that's one big reason. Another is you want to be on the winning side. Uh, we have seen over and over in history and in our study of Daniel that all of these kingdoms are temporary and passing away. And not only are they temporary and passing away, they're not righteous, not a single one of them. 
Now, I love the United States of America, and I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be a citizen. I'm grateful for those who have fought and defended our freedoms. But there's a lot of corruption and sickness in America, and you know that to be the case. In this kingdom, there is no corruption at all. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you want to be on the winning side, follow King Jesus. The next thing I want to urge you to do is invest your time, talent, and treasure in this eternal kingdom. The Son of Man that we've been reading about said this. All right, this Son of Man, okay, that we read about, who went and got face to face with the Ancient of Days. This Son of Man who rode in on the cloud with the majesty and authority that is His. This guy said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroys, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are endless reasons for you to serve this king. But the last one that I want us to focus on, he is the only one who is worthy of worship. We sang earlier that he left the majesty of heaven. And we've seen just a glimpse of that majesty that is his by right. He left that to be born in the most humble of circumstances. To become a man. And he didn't just become a man for a little while. He became a man for the rest of eternity. There's a man in heaven now because he condescended to become one of us. He dealt with this wicked and perverse generation that he was with. He submitted himself to, to sinful parents. Now, Joseph and Mary were great, great people, but they were, they were sinful human beings. And Jesus submitted himself, humbled himself to that. And then he humbled himself to the extent that he was willing to die for you. I mean, he was willing to die for the glory of his Father, but also for your sake. I'm... Guys, if you knew me better, you'd know how undeserving I am. And when I see that he was willing to die for me, it's astonishing. And I say, how worthy of worship is this one?